Hello and welcome to the Horses and Life podcast. I'm back in Pennsylvania. I just got back tonight from a trip to Europe, and I was over. I was been gone for about a week, and I'm not sure right now if it's midnight or noon, but it's one of those. It's kind of hard to keep up every now and then with the changing of the times and the planes and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, my friend Scott went with me, and we just got back. And now, trying to get some things done here, and I wanted to get this intro done so we could try to get this episode out to you guys, hopefully in the next day or so. And then tomorrow, we've got some horses to work and start getting some things packed up. Then we have a ranch roping event tomorrow evening. And then uh, I'm going to start packing things up, and I start my trip towards Texas here in a couple days, start uh, driving. So anyway, just had a wonderful trip. Got a lot of horses worked over there. Had a great clinic. Got to work with a lot of people. Beautiful over there in the Austrian Alps this time of year. And be looking for my newsletter coming out soon. There'll be some cool pictures from some of the uh, things we had going on there. Today, you'll be listening to an episode of the podcast that has, uh, this will be my first time with a repeat guest. Dr. Bud Rowe was a the first guest on my podcast, back to episode one. Uh, he helped me put my book together. He is a neurologist working out of the Kansas City area and uh, has an office in Los Angeles, California as well. If you uh, if you want to go back to episode one, it might be worth listening to if you're interested in him, if you haven't heard it yet. Before you go to this one, it tells you a little bit more about him. On my website, there'll be some links to his website, which is neurokc.com. And also uh, their publishing business website, which is whirlybirdpress.com. One of the books that will be coming out soon through Whirlybird Press is Bud's wife, Dr. Elizabeth Rowe. She is, uh, has a PhD in biochemistry, uh, over the years has submitted and had published numerous pieces of literature and peer-reviewed articles um, in the medical industry based on a lot of research and has spent a lot of time researching and uh, the alcohol-to-brain relationship. I always enjoy getting a chance to talk with Betsy. She's very knowledgeable about the internal side of things, the internal medicine and and um, the relationship between what we eat and how we feel and how all that stuff kind of works. So I don't visit with her much on the podcast. It's uh, talking to Bud, but we mentioned one of her books coming out later on, so I wanted to make sure and let you guys know a little bit about who she was too. There's a couple... A few things that we mentioned in this podcast that Bud and I were kind of talking about before we started recording and we finished talking about some of that stuff after. seems like a lot of the, the people that I get a chance to visit with, we we have a podcast, we record it for an hour or so, and then we go to dinner and that's when the good conversations kind of happens a lot or sometimes we don't have dinner, but we just sit around and get to visit more. And uh, it seems like I really enjoy that with people like Bud. And of course, that's how a lot of this idea of the podcast started in general is just conversations where I was able to learn something from someone else and I wanted to pass that on. But there was a few things that we mentioned in there that we were kind of talking about that we probably didn't, I probably didn't do a great job of making sure that we were specific about making sure everyone else could could hear exactly what we were talking about. So I'm just going to kind of go over some of those. There was a couple books that we had been discussing and the author is Yuval Noah Harari and he has a book called Sapiens and another book called Homodeus. The next book I think that we mentioned here today on the podcast is The Coddling of the American Mind, and that is by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Great books, by the way. I recommend all of them. That's why I'm spilling them out to you. I have not started on Homodeus yet, but I know the other two are great books. Malcolm Gladwell's podcast called Revisionist History. The episode I'm referring to in the podcast is season four, episode six, called Dr. Rock's Taxonomy. The only other thing that Bud mentions here in the podcast, he just kind of says something about Sam Harris's podcast, and Sam Harris's podcast is called the Making Sense Podcast. So I just wanted to make sure that I kind of read those out slowly, so if anyone was interested in looking some of that stuff up, they sure could. 
but those are all some books that Bud and I have both discussed a little bit in the past and uh, a big fan of all those and both of those podcasts too. I really enjoy listening to both of those along with a few others, but those are two of them that I like. So anyway, that's that. I'm not going to spend any more time giving you a whole lot of background about Dr. Rowe because I did that last time and you can listen to that if you want, but he is one of the top neurologists in the country and I just enjoy every chance I get to sit and listen to him. So hope you guys do the same. I bring you Dr. Bud Rowe. Okay, here I am in Shawnee, Kansas with my friends, the Rowe's. Dr. Rowe, thanks for being on the podcast again. Great to be with you again, Cal. So it's always good to uh, get to catch up with you guys when I can. I appreciate you having time to let me do this again. So first off, just tell me uh, what you guys have been up to. What's new with your practice or what what have you and Betsy been doing? We've pretty well curtailed our general neurology practice and are doing predominantly research, carrying out clinical trials, but also developing new ways of treating disorders in neurology called neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal lobar degeneration and trying to figure out a new approach to those disorders. We desperately need them in neurology. We know how to develop new drugs. Last time I think we talked about a kidney-safe x-ray contrast dye that we developed and has now gone through phase one trials with Ligand Pharmaceuticals because we sold that company to to Ligand and hit all all the endpoints and markers. And so that, that product is slated for worldwide development, be a major development for for anybody who needs any kind of x-ray procedure for cancer or for a stroke or for a heart attack or anything like that, to actually have a kidney-safe agent that won't, won't hurt their kidneys. So that we're real proud of that. That's, that's, uh, we're doing some great clinical trials in multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's disease and sleep medicine that are already in phase one which means kind of trying to find the right dose. And phase three, which means are they really working or not? So not to cut you off, but to back up just a second. In the past, the agents that we've used, you couldn't even really use them because of how hard they were on the kidneys or they would use them if they had to, but they would just sometimes cause some damage to the kidneys or just having having too much trouble. Tell us, tell us about the, the past procedures for people that aren't that familiar, like me. Well, about 10% of the time, if you had to have a cardiologist inject dye into your coronary arteries or an interventional neuroradiologist, let's say, to treat you for a stroke to inject intraarterial injections, you would develop kidney damage about 10% of the time. Now, they did what they had to do. You do what you got to do to actually save a patient's life and to save them from disability, try to keep it from happening again. But the price tag of that was some kidney damage. And about 1% of those people who had the kidney damage, 1% to 2%, went on to have to have a new kidney. And so that... It was not. It was not so good, but now. So that's been a necessary thing for a long, long time uh, to try to give an agent some sort of drug, some sort of dye that would not damage the kidneys, and would let the cardiologist know where the blockage was or the interventional neuroradiology. So that was a that was a major thing. Of course, we we found that when we were looking for something else which is the way most of life works, right? If you, if you keep your eyes open, you keep aware, you find stuff that when you're looking for other things. Like we were looking for a multiple sclerosis treatment that didn't damage the kidneys and yet was relatively inexpensive. And we found that, we found that, but we also found this dye. Yeah, that's super, super cool. Hopefully it's gonna keep on going yeah, through I, the phases it needs to go. go. For it. It's gonna be a very big drug, yeah. 
Good. Good. Okay. Now you were starting to say something also about some of the MS treatments or some of the things that you've been working towards. Yeah, exactly. For instance, with multiple sclerosis, we, we don't have a we don't have a cause and we don't have a cure, but we got 17 drugs out there, most of which are, are, are warmed over transplant drugs. And we need better therapies for multiple sclerosis. So we're participating in trials for novel agents for that. We need, we need something for Alzheimer's disease, something that will modify the disease, not just replace some transmitters temporarily, but will actually modify the disease. And we've had some real setbacks so far, just looking at amyloid. Amyloid is a protein that piles up in Alzheimer's disease. And we've had some setbacks, but even though those, those drugs are being developed now and the accumulation of tau, which is one of the little proteins that's in like the little railroad tracks that help get information from one part of the nerve cell to the next and nutrients and enzyme machinery. But really, as your old friend, our old friend Peter Campbell used to say, we're interested in what happens before what happens happens. That's right. And so just like, just like horses, the pharmaceutical industry and scientists are just only now asking, what happens before what happens happens? So it's not good enough to, to actually see the nerve cell dying or to see what happens when it dies. We need to find out what the cells are that are involved in its dying in the first place. So... So that's part, that's part of the next company, which is Neuropharmaceuticals, <laughs> which is a company that was formed about a year ago. Okay. Well, that's good. There's so many different things that, that you guys are always working on and that you're, that you're kind of into. It all boils down to just, just trying to help people get, yeah. through, get through their life. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of what, what it is. And, and there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things that you and I have talked about before. If you would, I'd love to, to hear... A little bit about, I know some of the listeners would love to hear, I've told some people about it when different places I go, I talk about you guys. You started out, and maybe started out isn't the right word, but there for a while you were doing some flying and you were, you were helping people in these rural areas around Missouri and Kansas, and you were kind of starting out to go different places and try to help people from where they were, people that maybe couldn't make it up to the city as much or couldn't get up there as much as, as they needed to to get the right health care, so you would go to them. Those were fun days. I, I flew, a, flew an airplane, and then finally, after a few close calls with the airplane, a little helicopter, and then I had a couple close calls with that, and I decided, hey, you just get, you got to give up flying. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to end up on the ground somewhere. But no, it was, it was great. And, and going out there to those, to those clinics and little tiny hospitals in different Two to four thousand person population towns got me close to the, like the folks that I grew up with, you know, the kind of in the mountains of Western North Carolina. But around here in Missouri and Kansas, they're kind of like, "Hey, Doc, I got to get in the crop. I got to get it. I, you know, no, I can't. I can't. You got to. You got to fix me up so I can get in that next that next crop." And there are really tough people out there. That's kind of Kansas City is kind of where Google meets the prairie. On the prairie out there, there are some just great people. Think about Kansas City, it's a lot of second generation folks, you know? I mean, it's not fifth and sixth generation city dwellers, it's people who are rooted in values and, uh, what we think of as Midwest values, but are really the kind of values that sustain things like family and, and friendship and mental health. And you take care of people rather than depend on large organizations to, to take care of people. 
So yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think it's all about uh, relief of human suffering. That's what it's been for me. So if, so that kind of thing, I I really I still enjoy. I mean, I learn. I, it seems like I'm getting stupider as the days go on. <laughs> I know less and less, but but I'm learning more and more. Really, that's how it's supposed to work. The more you learn about something, right? The more you realize you don't know. The more you realize there is to know, right? That's kind of yeah. how it's supposed to be. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. You always you always have to be wary of the people that are kind of going around like they've got it figured out, right? Those are the those are the ones. Those are the ones you want to stay away from. Stay away from. Yeah, that's right. That's for sure. So one of the other things that you guys have have been we've talked about it a little bit before, but of course one of the biggest things that that you have done at different times is talking about sleep. There's there's so many things that go that are happening today, and and it seems like there's a little more information out there about it now than there was five years ago even or a few years ago but tell us a little bit about just the average person how much sleep we need as adults and you know i know there's there's seems to be parents that when they're they're raising their kids that are really strict on bedtime getting up nap time then there's some that are kind of like oh whatever he'll sleep when he's tired he'll get up whenever you know that not that we're not that you or i either one today are going to try to tell people how to parent tell us some of the things that you've learned over the years on that and what you've been able to help people with there Okay, well, in the we have a lot more information on pediatric sleep. I'm, I'm including adolescents in that than we had before, but also more information on adult sleep. Uh, you know, adults, most adults are going to need seven hours. Some people are going to need more than that, and some very, very few are going to be able to get by on less than that. They call short sleepers. But the main reason, the main problem with sleep in our country is we we figure we can get by without it. It's just like you got to eat right, you got to sleep right, you got to air you breathe, and the water that you drink. It's it's just part of the brain's reconstructive process to uh, not just knit up the ravel sleep. Slave of care, as Shakespeare said, but we have twenty-four hour minds, and they're and they're active twenty-four hours, but they need the they need the break from stimuli coming in, in order to reprogram themselves, our minds, and the various stages of sleep are each one very important. But what we know about about sleep in adolescence now, maybe we didn't know five, six years ago, is that if you just delay the start time for school, half an hour or an hour, but or 45 minutes, you improve kids' performance, you decrease the suicide rate in teenagers, you decrease the anxiety that's present in teenagers, and that's because teenagers usually have what you call a phase delay. Namely, their, their clocks are set different from adults. So when we give them a little bit of a break, let them sleep in, maybe teach them a little bit, maybe just start school a little bit later, things get better for them. I don't think we knew that a few years ago. Now we know that. We also know that there's a huge amount of of just of sleep apnea in in the in the population. People that you'd never expect would have sleep apnea. We people skinny as a rail or really good, really great, looks like they're in great shape. I've dealt with soldiers who are built like a tank, but they have sleep apnea. And most of them snore, but not all of them. And uh, it just means opening up their airway. It's kind of a crude, crude treatment that we have, CPAP. But I sleep with CPAP. I wish I'd had one when I was in medical school. <laughs> but um, the sleep that you get has got to be good sleep. So when I say seven hours, I mean seven hours of good sleep. I mean seven hours of tossing and turning and waking up gasping for air and stuff like that. I mean, I mean seven hours of good continual sleep. 
It's hard to get. Yeah, it is. I mean, you guys are as busy as anybody I know, I think, and I, I stay pretty busy myself. And But if you don't take time for that, then nobody else is going to do it for you. Yep, that's right. Now, to, to kind of play the devil's advocate for just a minute, you were mentioning a few things a minute ago about some of the school times and the kids and sleeping in and, and some of the suicide rate can drop and test yep. scores can be better. Now, the other side of that is you hear people a lot of times talking about just kids in general today. We, we all know somebody that has a teenager, they can't get out of bed. You know, I mean, they're, it's nine, 10 o'clock on the, you know, even in the summer, even during school and they're, you know, all they want to do is sleep and da, 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 da. And, and, you know, there's, there's a balance there somewhere where we're not, we're not trying to tell people not to get up and do things. We're just trying to tell them to make sure they get that quality sleep when they need it. And I guess sometimes just going to bed earlier isn't really the, the key because they're not going to go to sleep as early, right? For some of those ages, I would assume. That's right. Uh, kids before the age of nine or 10 need nine hours. There's just no question about it. And, but I think uh, teenagers need at least eight. And, and slow-wave sleep for growth. Slow-wave sleep is when growth hormone comes out in the body and allows the body to grow, and, and it comes out in slow-wave sleep. That's not to say that every, every teenager, you know, who wants to sleep in, sleeps 10 hours and 12 hours a day, those folks got a problem, and they need to see a sleep specialist. There's, I don't want to lay any lingo on you, but there's, Adolescence is when a lot of narcolepsy starts. Narcolepsy, interesting disorder. It can be associated, it's associated with daytime sleepiness, but it can be associated with cataplexy. That's when somebody tells you a joke and your knees start to buckle or your, your lip starts to quiver or you have these spells where you can't, you can't ex- explain them. So. That's when narcolepsy, both type 1 and type 2 narcolepsy, start. Same thing with a so-called idiopathic hypersomnia. I don't want to lay too much lingo on you here, but, there's, but I am a sleep doctor. I'm a board and sleep medicine specialist, and I, I know about this stuff. And so you just don't want to blow off an adolescent who's, who's got to spend 14 hours in the bed and who falls asleep in class or falls asleep after school or something like that. They need to see a sleep specialist. So my old friend, Doug Bluebaugh, was an Olympic champion in 1960 wrestling. We quoted him in our book. The part in the book where we quoted him was him just saying something to the effect of, there's nothing new that needs to be invented in this sport of wrestling he was talking about. It's just doing the same things practicing them with better fundamentals, doing the, doing the same things more correct than everyone else. That's kind of what, what we were talking about in the book, about doing the, doing the same drills, just doing them better. You know, it's not like we got to invent some new technique. But anyway, the point is, he had narcolepsy. And when I was around him a little bit, and some of the people listening were around him as well too, and, you know, they can remember, we'd tell a joke, and he would kind of, he'd seize up like that. And if he was sitting down, he really had to hold onto the chair and things like that. But I remember something he said, and I don't know if this is true or not, and he's, he's passed away at this point, but one, something he said that the doctor at the time that he was seeing told him that if he would have came in to see him 15 years earlier, when he first started having some of these symptoms, that he could have really got ahead of it and made some, made some much more improvements or changes or prevented things from going as worse as they did. And that's something that he just mentioned it and kind of mentioned it to us one day. That's exactly right. And the tragedy I see is a sleep doc is somebody who's just been told they're lazy or been told they're just doing too much eat time now or, you know, they're just, even though teenagers do want to do too much eat time and they spend too much time gaming and then we don't, you know, the old days when you got up got up with the chickens and went to bed with the chickens after a hard day's work or hunter-gathering. We still got those brains. We can train them differently with light. But we have, but medicine has progressed so that they could, we could help your friend, Doug, lead a more productive life, get rid of a lot of the cataplexy that he had. And, um, and 
certainly have a more enjoyable life. But the tragedy is when you just blame it on being lazy. Just label it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like not, not just in medicine, but in so many things, there's, there's a lot of that that just happens. Just label it as this and go on instead of trying to actually investigate it and kind of find out, well, what's really going on? And then what happens, I think, with a lot of the adolescents or the youth is sometimes then they label themselves that way. And like you're saying, that can lead to a lot of the, the mental health issues that, that, uh, that we're seeing. You know, it's a, a different, completely different world. I think Harari says in, uh, in both these books, Sapiens and Homo Deus, that things have, things have changed radically for youth of today. There's also a book I don't think we talked about last time called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's really an important book, but it, it shows that there's, there's almost too much emphasis on social media. If you don't understand social media, and, and like when you started this podcast, you know, I thought, that's great. Yeah, this is, this is a true horseman, a person rooted, you know, to traditions that are thousands of years old, really, but who's got his head on just exactly right, looking, looking over the next horizon, right? There's an opportunity for social media to be, do good and do harm, and it's done a lot, uh, done a lot of both. But I think in terms of our adolescent population, it's important to develop an internal compass. And anymore, you know, the word is somebody falling asleep in class or, or being lazy or being irritable or something like that it just travels like wildfire. And so all of a sudden, not only does the little group around them know that they got a problem, but the whole school knows they got a problem. And everybody beyond the school knows they got a problem. So you have social shaming of these people. And it's just not right. So there's a good side of the social media and a, and a bad side of social media. Right now, they, you know, it's another conversation. They've been completely unregulated hiding behind free speech and that's just that's got to change and it might yeah I, I think it's gonna and i think some some good can come from that freedom of speech is maybe the most important thing we should always be able to protect but we also have to make sure that we don't use it in the wrong way right that's right you can't you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and not expect somebody to come down on you it's as simple as that but with the technology and the social media things are not as simple at times right so somebody who just, you know, I, I mean, naturally, I think this is just something I was kind of reading a little bit the other day, but your energy levels are supposed to go up and down throughout the day. I mean, that's just kind of a natural thing, I think, or from what I was kind of reading. But there's a point somewhere where after lunch, you sit down, you know, me, you work all morning, like a lot of the blue collar people out there, not just blue collar people, but people that work wherever you work all morning and you're probably going to have a lunch break of some kind. And then after that, you kind of maybe get back to it, and then it's like, man, sometimes it's tough. There's that little slump, you know, the 2 or 3 p.m. slump, I've heard people call it. And it's hard sometimes to get that going back in there. Does a lot of that just have to do – I mean, obviously, there are some people on, on each end of the spectrum, right? There are people that have – they need some help with a sleep specialist like you. Then there are people that, you know, they just maybe need to eat a little bit better in the morning so they have some energy throughout the day or eat better at lunch or or just be able to kind of get to moving. So – Every, there's got to be different people along that spectrum at different different places, right? Yeah. There is what you call a circadian dip, but that it's, it's strange. That gets better when you get enough sleep, good sleep at night, and when you don't overeat at lunch, you don't don't drink wine and stuff like that. I mean, you know, you go to France, I guess. You you've been to France, I guess. They don't play anything after lunch. They're done. Gonna, They're done by noon. No, I don't know. Yeah, there's circadian dip that basically has been shown, this is scientifically shown, to go away. When you get enough good sleep at night, it, it, it's not there. And just reading recently uh, the value of fasting, of fasting. Typically, we plan our big meals at night. It's probably the wrong thing to do. And there's no real, there's no good evidence that a fantastic breakfast really helps as much. If we plan it around a good, healthy lunch, 
probably do better. We burn up calories in the afternoon. We don't have to worry about the, about the energy level. It's a strange thing. It's funny you mentioned that maybe today there's not a whole lot of real evidence. I think the way you just put it was to, to say that a great breakfast is really going to do us as much good as, as we kind of maybe had been taught or some people had said in the past. Things change a little bit with science, and they're supposed to. Oh, and yeah. I think that's something a lot of people don't really grasp. That with new evidence, then things are supposed to change. You know, it's, it is it is kind of funny, though. I made a joke the other day, I think, to my uh, my mother and somebody we were talking about dinner. They were going to cook some eggs. I said, sure, I'll have an egg. They're good for you again this year. You know, because it seems like for a while they were like the thing everybody pushed. And they oh, no, eggs are bad. And then, oh, I think they're good again, right? So it's interesting, though, how some of that is more research and more evidence that we are able to understand more. But some of it is just the, not even the science community, but it's just the, the media community or the, the people that are out there just talking about things that really don't have any basis on what they're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's uh, everybody's got their diet, everybody's got their supplement. I just, I mean, I think the, the, the characteristic of, of Europeans that allowed them to go all over the world was, I think Harari's probably right. They were just, they just said, hey, I don't know. I'm going to try to find out. And that's, that's a whole scientific attitude. So, I mean, everybody's body's a little bit different, but, but I just found that this, um, people that I see with all kinds of pain, with headaches, and despite all the new drugs and everything like that for headache, with headache and joint pain and neck and back pain, seem to do better with an autoimmune protocol diet. Now that's that seems like a lot of lingo, but but basically it's autoimmune protocol diet. A lot of vegetables. You can eat some kind of protein source. You know, fish. I mean, you can eat red meat if you want it, or chicken if you want it. But a lot of vegetables, and that seems to fresh vegetables, and that seems to work work better than anything else in terms of helping people with these different pain syndromes that are caused, that are caused by this thing that we're now investigating called hypermobility syndrome, hypermobility spectrum disorder. Some people are a little more flexible than the average bear, but what actually turns these people from hypermobile people into hypermobile patients or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome without a specific genetic disorder. We don't know. We don't know what causes that. But that's, I've seen so many people improve their back pain, improve their neck pain, improve their sleep by doing autoimmune, honestly, dairy-free kind of diets and it had, I'm sure it has to do with the gut microbiome and prebiotics and avoidance of things like fluoroquinolone specific kind of antibiotics that affect collagen not stretch until it hurts and holds in it and it's some basic common sense things but I think that diet has made a big difference in a lot of people's lives that I've seen so talk to us a little bit about the balance of and maybe the balance isn't even the right way to say it but we're learning more all the time about genetics and we're learning more all the time about you know understanding our own dna and and what we can do and people can have a lot more information than they ever used to have about what's really inside themselves and what's been passed on through their generation so that obviously has something to do with with some of the things that you're talking about but diet has a, a big role in it as well so you know, it seems like there's a lot of both out there. There's a lot of people that all they ever talk about is eat healthy, eat healthy, eat healthy. And then there's people that say, well, I'm genetically predisposed to X, Y, or Z, you know, and, and uh, I think there's, there's got to be uh, a lot of information that, that you've, you've looked into a lot of that, I know, over the years. You know, to tell the truth, I don't, I don't have the easy diet or the eat dirt or the um, miracle cure here. I'm, I'm still learning. For instance, the meat allergy thing. Have you heard of, you've heard probably a meat allergy where a 50-year-old suddenly develops a meat allergy. Well, that's, that's because of a tick bite 
and the similarity of something that tick carries to to a protein in the in the human body you've uh, there's all all kinds of autoimmune disorders right and, and you're never going to hear most rheumatologists you're never going to hear anything about dietary control of the immune system but actually this autoimmune protocol diet not only good for headaches and back pain and neck pain but it's good for the autoimmune disturbances that these folks that these folks develop with lupus antibodies, Sjogren's antibodies, rheumatoid antibodies. And we found in, in a series of multiple sclerosis patients that a lot, of these, a lot of these hypermobile people have abnormal MRIs of their brain just like the multiple sclerosis patients. And we know now how important the gut, little buggies, the microbiome that live in our gut, is important to the development of autoimmune diseases in animals and models for multiple sclerosis. So, long story short is, I, I don't know, I'm pretty humble about all this stuff. I can just tell you what I do. <laughs> and I, I, follow I follow antibodies and stuff like that, but I, I can just tell you what seems to help folks, but I can't give you specific reasons because I'm learning all the time. That's good. I listened to a podcast a while back, and the guy said, "Never, ever, ever stop learning." So that that, that's a good, that's a good thing. You remember that guy? If if you guys don't know this, I'll probably mention it in the intro, actually. But Doctor Rowe was actually my first podcast guest, so you can scroll back to episode one if you haven't listened to that, and uh, we talked a little bit about some of those things too. And hope, hopefully, I have better diction this time. Well, you know, <laughs> I did before. That was one of my first interviews too. So there you go. We're both, uh, we're just friends, and we're yeah, just sitting around BSing. We're trying to trying to move a little bit. So. Some of the things that, that you're talking about, the eating diets and just eating the correct diet, from, and, each, and different people can get along great with different types of diets, right? That's the thing that's, you know, it's just kind of like with the horse thing that you've, we've talked about before. And just when you see patients in general, they're not always in general, right? They're, they're not always the same. You can't just paint everything with a broad brush. I mean, there's this diet for that person and that diet for this person won't, won't match, right? It won't work. I watch a lot of when I worked in the school a little bit, I thought about it a lot and, and I watched the different kids and what they ate and different things and, and, and the differences in the kids, you know, some kids were in great shape and, and some kids were terribly obese and some were, it seemed to me like they could gain a few pounds and it seemed like they were all pretty much eating the same thing. There has to be a lot of, uh, a lot of different things and just figuring out that what, what they need to eat and what they, and what's, what's good for that one isn't always good for this one. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I, but I think uh, I've seen enough patients now to know that, well, I've heard some, some testimonials, for instance, from a woman who had three autistic kids, and the diet made a huge difference in their avoiding certain foods and eating autoimmune protocol kind of diet made a big difference in, in their lives. But the fad kind of diets just don't, just don't cut it. They they just don't cut it. So, I'm again. I'm I'm still learning about all this stuff. But I think the main thing is listen to your body. If it makes you feel bad, don't do it. Like I, I see these people coming in with they're red as a beet. Their hands are red. I scratch their forearm, and it looks like I dragged a piece of barbed wire across their forearm. You know, in thirty seconds. And I know they've got mast cell activation syndrome or disorder or whatever the name du jour. That means they have histamine release, huge histamine release with mechanical trauma. And so they're going to want to be on a lower histamine kind of diet. Like avocados, great source of stuff for a lot of people, but a real strong histamine containing and prohistamine kind of containing food. So you just kind of listen to your body and try to, if, if you feel bad 30 seconds or 30 minutes after 
you eat something. Don't do it. Don't eat it again. Don't, don't figure out what it was. You know, and don't do it anymore because that's telling, that's telling you something. That's your body telling you something big time. If, if, if you could drink coffee, if you have to drink coffee in the late afternoon to stay awake so you can get uh, stuff done at night, you know, you know the half-life of caffeine is 12 hours. That's got to tell you something. You're not, you're not going to bed early enough or you're, you know, you're just not getting enough sleep. So just, you just listen to your, your body. I mean, it'll tell you a lot of stuff about what's going on, what you ought to be eating. Yeah, you, you mentioned some of the fad diets, right? And there seems like there's always a, there's always a new diet out and that people are subscribing to, and, and there's always a new diet pill which is another extreme version of, of just a new diet. But it just seems like there's always some new magical pill. There's always some new supplement that people are trying to push out there that right. it's medically proven, blah, 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 blah. And then you look at the fine print on the screen and not quite so much, you know. But, you know, certain trials, it works on certain percentage of people. And it just seems like every, you know, even for somebody like me, it just seems like that stuff's never going to go away. And I think, I think a lot of people feel like, well, we're getting – we're learning more. We have more advances in technology. So there should be a higher reason that could work now, right? Which is the opposite way to think, I think. But I see all these, all these supplement aisles in the, in the grocery store. And these people who are, who are trained to come over and help you. And they're really selling you stuff. And I, I think a lot of this is... A lot of the the proliferation of this, of the availability of these supplements is one, hey, my doctor's not, is trying to keep this from me. But the druggist, you know, the pharmacist or the, um, or the health food store person knows they're going to tell me what's right and they're going to sell me this stuff. The other is kind of a, is under the label of trust, uh, just distrust in medicine because traditional medicine has, has overpromised and underdelivered. And this is especially since war on cancer and the ever since hospitals started to dominate medicine and there's started to be so much money in the surgical subspecialties and the hospital domination of medicine as opposed to your Marcus Welby guy, or the, some of the people that I knew when I was flying to these different outreach clinics, some of the best doctors I ever knew, were they were in the community, and they were taking care of people, and they could knock on their knock on their door any time of the day or night, and these were really fine doctors because they knew they were on the line, they were going to take care of people. Now it's just kind of re- replaceable medicine. And you spend more than five minutes with a doctor and you think you died and gone to heaven. I see that. And I'm trying to educate people. I'm going to set up a podcast too because I'm going to follow your example here because I think it's a great example. You and Sam Harris and a lot of really great podcasts out there where you learn so much. I think people need to know that the healthcare professions work for them. They work for the healthcare and the healthcare profession professionals, whether nurse practitioners or PAs or or doctors. They have to have a certain um, amount of listening and cognitive effort directed towards the patient, them, the patient. And if they don't get it, they need to move on to some to somebody who will listen because that's the only way. You can find out what's wrong with people is to listen to them. And uh, it has to do with what's wrong with healthcare today. But that's, that's, another, that's another story. That's a long, long discussion. You're right. It's another discussion, but it's a good discussion. And I think you're at a critical point where you're in a very great position to be able to try to help people with that. And, and I think the young people that are out there starting into medicine today they need more of that, and not that I'm anybody that they should listen to at all about medicine, but as far as just that general theory of it, like you were just talking about, I mean, I don't 
I don't have to have a medical degree to know how the how the medical industry works whenever you try to go to the doctor or lack thereof. And like you just said, if you spend more than two or three minutes with the doctor, you feel like, wow, I must have something going on because that's just kind of how a lot of it goes today. And then backing up just a little bit, you mentioned in there about, you know, just the, there's a general distrust of, of medicine, right? Of modern medicine. There's a lot of that out there. And, and, and you can understand some of it, right? I mean, obviously, it's very understandable. And then also you mentioned about just the supplement aisle or the, the different pills and like some of our doctors are trying to keep us from that. But I also think that right there, you took a little bit of a, of a biased point because you're kind of thinking from your own point of view. Because me just knowing you guys, you're not pushing medicine onto yeah. everybody. But that's not, I wouldn't, and I don't know if this is the norm or the, that's the correct way to say it. But that doesn't seem to be the norm out there. I don't know. It seems to me that, uh, for instance, burnout is just endemic in certain professions, and one of them is medicine. And we've been asked to essentially become computer technicians and fill out boxes for insurance companies who are essentially, God love them, but they're kind of parasites and CMS, God, God love it, you know, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It's an over-regulatory industry, and the hospital systems, God love them, but there's 10 administrators for every doctor in a hospital system. And it just, medicine costs five times as much as it ought to, ought to cost. So that's, that's the first thing a person's going to think, hey, what, what? What what are they all these what are these fees that are tacked on? Who are these doctors that I'm being charged with if they have to come out of the hospital? So they don't want to come in the hospital. So they say, Well, okay. And then secondly, I don't know I don't know if it's if it's pushing medicine, but it is a way the doctors use to get a person out of the office. It's a script pad. A script pad is just a wonderful tool. Listen for five minutes, write a script, next case. And they're actually forced into this position. They're forced into this position because no longer did they get by with seeing 15 to 20 patients. They got to see 30, 40, 50 patients a day. I'm talking about family practitioners and generalists. And so they're forced that way forced to do that by their hospital overlords <laughs> who want to see a larger funnel for more surgeries coming into hospitals. I'm just saying, I, I don't know what's going to happen to reverse all this trend and to, and to emphasize quality medical care as opposed to, quote, quality measures, end quote, which are just box checking things. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be people who say, no, nah, I'm not going to spend two minutes with you and you write a script and you expect me to leave. I want you to tell me, what are you giving me this thing for? You know, what's wrong with me? Or what do you think is wrong? Yeah, you're not perfect. I know that. But what, what do you think? How can I help myself? Do I have to take a drug for this? That kind of thing. And so I, I think... Uh, I think something's going to have to happen for people to be educated to demand that kind of health care. Otherwise, nothing is ever going to change. That's what your podcasts will do. Yeah, that's what I want to do. And that's what DrRow.com. It's a website that we put some videos and some scripts and some blogs up on to help people you know, educate them in some of the areas that we've done some research in. So they'll know what they can expect from, from their doctor. And if the doctor's not giving them that or the provider's not giving them that or they just want to shuttle them out of the office, they can look somewhere else or they can call them on it. I listened to Mal's podcast just recently where he talked about John Rock, I think was one of the co-inventors of the birth control pill. And his philosophy on medicine and how some of that stuff worked. And he's from the, from the sounds of it on the podcast, I believe he's passed away now, but 
he wanted to see a smaller amount of patients each day. And he didn't even, he was trying to charge people as minimal as possible. And it was just, just a great story listening to some of that stuff. And the way they got it approved through the FDA was they just went down there finally and kind of yelled at the guy behind the desk, like, why aren't you doing your job? Come on, this is approved. We did, research is ready. Boom, let's do it. And so they got it done. But anyway, it's a great podcast. You guys get a chance to listen to that. But there's a lot of changes in medicine today. And you were telling me a little bit about some of the changes that you're able to do now, taking some medic care or Medicaid patients? What I decided to do was, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, so I just, I decided to get off all the insurance panels. People love, the insurance companies love me because I delivered cost-effective, comprehensive medicine, neurology care in um, in an outpatient setting. So people saw me essentially and and the facilities that i can i controlled i controlled everything in our in our small institute everything from mri to sleep to emg all the things uh eeg all the things a neurologist really needs to do we were the only independent neurology group for you know miles around a lot of miles 100 miles around and so I just decided, no, well, I'm, where I can make my contribution now in my remaining years is by focusing on research. That's how I can help the most people and how I can ask and try to answer the big, big questions. So I just got off all the insurance panels. I don't, I don't see, we don't take any insurance at all. Opted out of Medicare, don't take any Medicare at all. But we try not to make financial considerations the the main consideration when a person's coming in and they have no other options. So I mean there there obviously there's obviously a very fine filter on that because a lot of a lot of people, one, you can never take care of them in an outpatient setting. They need inpatient care. Two, they need an inpatient they need hospitalization. But that's a choice that I made. Now, I'm going back to the old-fashioned way of, of practicing medicine. I remember when I was an intern, I actually got a chicken. <laughs> that was really interesting. This guy was so grateful to me. I was an intern. I was in Seattle. I remember this guy actually brought me a chicken. That was a big deal for him, right? You know, this was at a, a because you're grateful, grateful. I, I was being paid by the by the hospitals. He gave me a, a, a chicken. No, it was a it was a dead chicken. It was a nice chicken, you know. For me to eat. The chicken that but just the I think the you know, the people who live in the small communities they're they're used to that kind of stuff. That's the Tom Dorrance way. Yeah. And then and then hospitals of course have moved in. There's so much money to be made in in medicine that the hospitals have taken over the management and the, even the, in the smaller communities. So the smaller physicians who really, who were raised in those communities are driven out. So you're seeing patients in the Kansas city area in your, in your office here in Lenexa. And you're also seeing patients at your office in Los Angeles, California. And what if there's somebody else somewhere else that hears this and says, and that sounds like the guy that I want to go see. If they can't get here, they can go to your website, try to find a little bit of information, and, and there's, there's maybe something that can help them there. That's right. And that's what I'm trying to do with, with our website. I've always tried to do it with our website. We've got fifteen or 16,000 hits a month, which is not a huge number, but, but it's a pretty big number for a neurology practice. And so that's neurokc.com www.neurokc.com. And then I'm trying to, set up, trying to set up, it's also drrow.com, which is an attempt to help people understand what they need to communicate in terms of their expectations to their docs, to their neurologists. That's if they can't come to LA or they can't come to Lenoxa. Maybe they can get some tips there about some of the areas that we've been interested in, we've made major advances in, and just want to 
help people with. Besides all the exciting things you're doing here in the medical field, you're still into the publishing a little bit and the writing. And last time I was here, you, you talked a little bit about a new woman that is a poet in yeah. Boston that you, you guys have worked with a little bit. Tell us what's going on on that front. And you have some other books coming up. You can maybe mention about that. We've completed the editorial process on her, on her book. Her name is Carol Halberstadt. Very interesting woman. And I first saw her poems in JAMA. And, I thought, and so I, I emailed her and said, hey, Carol, have you got a book? And I said, no, I, I don't have a book. It's kind of like Emily Dickinson. She's written all these poems, and they're great. They're really fine poems. But no, she didn't have a book, but she had like 40 JAMA poems. And then she had other, she's written other poems that have been published other places. So I said, okay, Carol, let's put it together. Let's put together a book. Because I think you're giving patients who don't have much hope. She's had a lot of medical challenges as well as she's lived in uh, some very interesting social work situations, the Dene, Israel, a very interesting social situations to help people. But her, her poems are very interesting. So I thought, you, you're going to give people hope. So I'll tell you what, let's, uh, we'll put out your book. So we just got the, uh, got the covers back on, on her book. And I, I expect the Whirlybird Press is going to be putting out her book. Probably, it'll probably be in press in another, another six weeks. Probably uh, copies will be available. Your book. I ask you the same question. <laughs> you know, hey Cal, you have a book, and why not? And we, you know, that's how we get started on your on your project. Then David Ray. Hey David, I want to do one of your books. Oh, okay. The David Ray, famous poet. You know, lives in um, Tucson area now. Elizabeth probably has some. You know, my wife has some amazing stories. I mean, we you know sailing stories and. From places that you guys have sailed and things yeah. like that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and some near misses we've had there. <laughs> I mean, you know, life does, as long as you're challenging yourself and challenging your boundaries, sometimes you're going to just be lucky to make it through. And, and we have, but, but we've done that. And then the other projects that we've got, we've got going on, right? several, eight. You know, we've done 14 books now, and yeah, Betsy and I put out some stories. So there's, there's always, and we have people approaching us, you know, like, do you want to do this? And well, no, it's kind of outside of what we do. One of the biggest compliments I've had lately is I carry a couple copies of the ride with me on trips and stuff. So we went to the Normandy beaches to to see where, you know, we owe those guys everything. To see where where the invasion of Normandy took place in those different beaches. And met a uh, a very high uh, a retired, very high ranking Air Force person on this trip. And, you know, we just kind of struck up a conversation, started talking about stuff. He He's, he's as smart as they come. And, and so I gave him one of these books, and one of these bo- little books called The Ride. I think it's, it's put together in a, in a way that, that unfolds to a couple little one-act plays. So you use different genres to actually tell a story. Every time I saw this guy, he had this book in his hand. <laughs> I cannot believe it. That's, that was the biggest compliment. And I wrote The Ride uh, a number of years ago. Yeah, I read it. But anyway, so, I mean, he had it. He, he was reading it every, every time I saw him. He was asking me questions. Hey, what do you mean about this? Well, what? What's? And then he's, he wants to put out a book of his own. And I, it's, he's a, it's probably not right for Whirly Bird, but we'll see. We'll just see. And people, if they're interested in that, that part of what you guys do, that's Whirly Bird Press. Whirly Bird Press. Is that dot .com? Is that, is that the website? Whirlybirdpress.com, yeah. Yeah, we'll make sure and put a link to that stuff too. And hopefully we'll have a few more books out this this fall. I think we will. Cool. Well, Bud, I sure appreciate your time. Oh, it was great talking with you, Cal. It's just always great talking with you. I look forward to uh, hearing what you've got to say next. If you get a podcast going or if you get another book out, I look forward to reading Betsy's book for sure. That'd be cool. So, 
All right. Well, anything else you want to leave everybody with before we sign off today? Just those words, never, ever, ever, ever give up. Never give up. (laughs) Thank you very much. If you're enjoying the Horses in Life podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can obviously tell people about it. You can tell your friends about it. You can share it through social media or any other means. You can go to patreon.com and support it financially. There's a little more information on my website about the podcast. Also on my website, calmiddleton.com. Please be sure you sign up for my monthly newsletters through my email subscription list. Until next time, enjoy each day. Enjoy each day.